Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word beginning in Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. May the Lord bless His Word to us. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we'll be focusing our attention upon verses 6 through 12, but I'm just going to read verses 4 through 6 so that we can remind ourselves of the progression of thought here as the Apostle Paul addresses the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Verse 4, he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he cites some verses at the opening of Psalm 32. So here you can see what Paul is saying here. He's contrasting two methods of finding a right standing 
before God. Two methods of gaining righteousness in God's sight. Two methods of justification. Verse 4 is a method that proceeds on the basis of our own performance, of our own works. You want to be right with God? You want to make it to heaven when you die? You want to have peace and joy in your life through fellowship with God here and now in this life? This first method would say it's by your works, it's by your performance. Your religious performance, your ceremonial performance in the Old Testament circumcision in the New Testament, baptism, the Lord's Supper. You're right with God on the basis of your own religious performance, your own moral performance. You've done these good works and you've avoided these scandalous sins. And so therefore, you're right with God. And perhaps there's some notion of comparative righteousness that often comes into play. Well, Uh, I've sinned, but I certainly haven't sinned as bad as him or her. And so God accepts me as righteous. I'm justified in the sight of Almighty God by my works. And Paul is saying if even an ounce of your own performance is injected into the equation of your right standing with God, if even an ounce of your own moral, ceremonial, comparative performance enters in to your confidence in being able to exit this life and enter into eternal bliss in heaven, if it enters in at all, then in fact, to some extent, heaven and salvation are your wages and you've met the condition and you deserve them. And God is actually indebted to you. It's not free grace. It's not a gift. It's a debt. It's wages. And of course, the danger of this first approach, which is really natural to the natural man in our unconverted fallen state, coming into the world in sin, conceived and born in iniquity, we naturally gravitate toward this because it makes us feel good about ourselves. And we desire as sinful creatures to have honor and glory to ourselves and not to God. And so, this is the kind of teaching that we gravitate to. And so, virtually every other religion in this world has some version of this. You will not find the doctrine of justification by faith alone in any other religion of the world. And I'm not sure I've even ever encountered any of the pseudo-Christian cults or false churches and groups that are claiming to be Christian but are heretics, I don't think I've ever encountered any of them that teach justification by faith alone. Certainly it's rare. Because the fact is, the unconverted man by nature desires to contribute something to his own justification. And so Paul's having to persuade people that have bought into this false religion, particularly among the Jews. The the false doctrines of the Pharisees had injected human performance, whereas Abraham was justified by faith, and we'll see David was justified by faith, and all of God's believing people in the Old Testament were justified simply by faith, believing God's promise through God's salvation. We'll look at that in a moment. But these Pharisees had injected works. They'd brought performance into the equation. And Paul is having to address this problem because there are so many Jews who had then become Christians and this teaching had followed them into the church and become a great stumbling block. 
even to the point of dividing Jews and Gentiles within the professing church in Rome, because especially in Galatia as well, if you look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, but in Rome, it's enough of a problem that he's addressing it here to where they were saying, well, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses as a condition, as a prerequisite to being right in the eyes of God. And Paul is addressing this. And he addresses it the only way to address biblical doctrinal issues, and that is to go to the Bible. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? And so he quotes Genesis 15.6. How was Abraham, the idolater, the unconverted idolater in Ur of the Chaldees? Read Joshua chapter 24. Abraham, the unconverted, wicked idolater, how was he saved? He believed God. And it was accredited to him unto righteousness. He was justified through faith. And Paul describes this method in verse 5. He says essentially the problem with saying that salvation and heaven and all these things are according to this system of works, this system of debt. The problem here is that if you really want to get what you deserve, then the wages of your sin is death. So be careful what you wish for. If you inject even one ounce of your own performance into the equation of your legal standing with God, and there's even a half a percentage of corruption of sin in that ounce of performance, you're disqualified. And the wages of your sin is death. We can't do works that would be acceptable in the sight of God because of our sin. Even the thoughts and intents of our heart are all evil continually by nature, So, our best works, the Bible says, are filthy rags. They're dead works. They're deserving of hell. Even even as much in some sense as our evil works. They both deserve hell because they're corrupted by sin. So, we don't want to, to stand before God on the basis of wages or debt. But he says, verse 5, "...to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for, or that is, unto righteousness. So he's saying you can be justified, you can have your sins forgiven, and you can be accepted by God as righteous, legally, judicially, in His sight, by faith. And faith here is not the basis of your righteousness. Well, I believe, and therefore that faith is a good thing. It's righteous to obey God by believing what He's commanded me to believe, and so I'm right with God on the basis of my own faith. That's just turning faith into works. He says, not by works, but to Him who believes. And so faith here is just the empty hand receiving Christ's righteousness. Pointing to Jesus and what He accomplished and receiving eternal life. Receiving His perfect righteousness. His perfect obedience and full satisfaction unto death on the cross, receiving it as one's own to be righteous in the sight of God. And Paul says that's the only way to be justified. Him who doesn't work, him who renounces all hope of merit, all hope of works in himself, but rather believes on him who justifies the ungodly. The person who says, God be merciful to me, an ungodly sinner. The only thing I contribute to my salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And that's the message here. That's how we're made right with God. Renouncing our works and simply 
receiving Christ by faith. But he continues to cite Scripture. Verse 3, what does the Scripture say? Well, verse 6, he's going to give another Scripture. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Notice, by the way, that in order to prove justification by faith alone, in order to prove this central doctrine of the biblical gospel, this cornerstone of the doctrines of grace, in order to demonstrate it, Paul's quoting the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, the Old Testament was all about works, and then Jesus came and changed all that. Well, apparently the Apostle Paul wasn't up to speed on your theology because he's quoting the Old Testament to refute people that think that you're justified by works. He's quoting the Old Testament to refute Pharisees and teachers of the law who would impose a burden of works as a basis for right standing with God. So he's quoting from the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, just as David also describes this same phenomenon, the blessedness of the forgiveness of our sins, Psalm 32. And so he's going to unpack this. He's going to unpack what David says. He's going to bring it back into the issue of Abraham. And he's going to bring up the issue, was Abraham justified before or after he received circumcision. And he's going to demonstrate that Abraham was actually justified, made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ who was yet to come, and the promise of God. He was made right with God prior to circumcision. Therefore, circumcision can't be a condition, a prerequisite for anyone to be justified. I mean, the first guy to be circumcised was already justified. It was a sign and seal, an outward indication of the righteousness of the faith which he already had. It was not a prerequisite, a stepping stone to receive that righteousness based on circumcision itself. And of course, you have no shortage of groups in the world claiming to be preachers and teachers on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ who would tell us that either we're justified by our baptism or we need to get baptized and then that's going to give us a new heart and enable faith and give us the forgiveness of sins in some way making baptism either the means of justification or as a prerequisite to having a right standing with God, right? Satan is not that creative. It's the same kind of thing that we see today as Paul was dealing with. Uh, it's just that you know he, he's dealing with the issue of circumcision. People deal with, people uh, have impose that now upon baptism. So Paul is seeking to vindicate justification by faith alone. And in doing so, he demonstrates the great blessing of justification. And so we're going to consider a number of aspects of that. First, as we think of the blessing of justification, we see its gracious judicial character. Its gracious judicial character. God justifies the ungodly. We talked in our last sermon in this series upon, uh, we talked about the Roman Catholic Church and various backslidden Protestants who are trying to tell us that our justification is not merely the legal reckoning of what Christ did to our account, the imputation of righteousness, but rather that our justification in some way involves 
what God does in our lives. That as Rome teaches, God transforms us. That justification includes our regeneration. God infuses righteousness into our nature. He makes us a new creature. And our right standing with God is then partly on the basis of God looking at that righteousness that He's put into our new nature. And of course, a true believer is born again and does have something of righteousness and holiness placed in him, his new nature, the work of the Holy Spirit, but that's not the basis of our right standing with God because even that is imperfect in this life. But this is what they're telling us, that justification is not merely judicial and gracious in the fullest sense, but that it's partly based upon how God makes us better in ourselves. So it's what Jesus did and what the Holy Spirit's doing to make us better people. And God looks at some combination of both and says, righteous. And that is heresy. That is just a sophisticated way of doing what we just said was a false gospel. Injecting our own performance, our own nature, our own selves into the equation of justification. Now it's interesting, he quotes Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And I want you to notice what he says and what he doesn't say in quoting the first two verses of this psalm. Going back to Psalm 32, listen to the first two verses. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Isn't that interesting? So, when David is speaking of the blessedness of the true Christian, the true believer, and he speaks of the person's justification, he speaks of their transgression being forgiven, their sin being covered, the Lord does not reckon their iniquity to their account. He doesn't impute iniquity to them. Psalm 130 says, if the Lord should count iniquity against us who could stand but there is forgiveness David saying blessed is the person who has all those things but then he adds something of a qualifier for self-examination because you see there are a lot of people that claim to have their sins forgiven that claim to believe these promises that claim to be new creatures in Christ that claim to be justified by faith but they many of them are false converts Jesus said many will say on that day Lord Lord but he'll say, I never knew you. So David understands this dynamic, and so he adds something at the end of verse 2 as something of a qualifier, similar to what James does in James chapter 2, where he says, okay, if it's true faith, it's going to produce works. And so if your faith is without works, doesn't doesn't mean he's disagreeing with Paul. We've dealt with this in previous sermons. But he's saying true justifying faith will produce works. Otherwise, it's dead. It's not true saving faith. And David is aware of this problem. So he says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So there are people who profess, oh, my sins are forgiven, but they're deceiving themselves. They're just using it as an excuse to continue in sin. They're not right with God. They don't love God. They have no interest in the Lord. But they use this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Really, they abuse it to their own destruction. And we could look at numerous New Testament passages that confront this problem. Well, David's confronting it. And so he adds this element where he says, yes, but the one who has his sins forgiven 
will have a changed nature. He will have a regenerate spirit who truly trusts in the Lord. There's no deceit in his heart. In other words, he's not faking it. He's not abusing it. Though he is imperfect, uh, there's something genuine that's going on in his faith. Now, if the Apostle Paul understood justification to include both the forgiveness of sins and the transformation of our nature, if that's the teaching that he's setting forth in the epistle to the Romans, then I submit to you it's virtually certain that he would not have cut short his quotation in the middle of verse 2. Why is it that when Paul is dealing with justification by faith alone, he quotes up through the middle of verse 2, he's, he's talking about forgiveness, the covering of sin, not imputing iniquity. Why does he leave off that last statement of David, and in whose spirit there is no deceit? He leaves it off very simply because the transformation of your nature at your conversion has nothing to do with your right standing before God. It's part of salvation. It's a gift from God. It prepares us for heaven. It bears witness to the truth of our faith. But it has no bearing in justification. And I'd love an explanation from Roman Catholics. I'd, I'd love an explanation. I'm not sure I would love it really. But in some sense, I'd love to hear that. Why does he stop short there if the transformation of our spirit actually is part of justification. It's clear that Paul is excluding all works, even the work of the Spirit to make us increasingly more like Christ, excluding all of it from justification. It's all about the judicial removal of our sin and the imputation of righteousness graciously given, received by faith alone. And notice the terminology that Paul uses here. He says that there is the imputation of righteousness apart from works. Verse 6, could not be clearer. God reckons righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, read chapter 5, apart from works. Uh, What works do come into play in your justification? Well, according to David, lawless works. The only works you contribute to the process of justification or the act of justification is the lawless deeds that need to be forgiven and taken away. As David speaks of God's forgiveness, David's not bringing his own righteousness. David's bringing his lawless deeds. David's bringing all of his sinful acts before the throne of God's mercy and asking and seeking forgiveness according to his steadfast love. And he's saying, blessed is the one who has this. Now, our lawless deeds are far more than we may even realize. You start going through the Ten Commandments and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the way Jesus interprets any uh, looking with lust is adultery, anger and bitterness and hatred in our heart toward our brother is murder. You start going through the many ways in which we sin against others, the many ways in which we, we, we treat God as if He's just this uh, peripheral, entity in our lives. We ignore Him. We set Him aside. We're prayerless. We're, we're, we're selfish. We're greedy. We're covetous. Uh, we, we could go on and on and on. In fact, by nature, the Bible says that every thought of our hearts, every thought and intention of our hearts is all evil continually by nature. 
Genesis 6, verse 5. And Proverbs 21, 4 puts it this way. A haughty look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked are sin. I want you to think about what Solomon is saying there under inspiration. A haughty look. So we look at someone in a prideful way. Children, uh, if you have a bad attitude toward your brother or your sister, or your mom or your dad, just a bad attitude, just looking at someone with a bad attitude, a proud heart, a, a sense of superiority, a sense of pride toward that other person, even that, as Proverbs 6 tells us, is an abomination in God's sight. But also, because of our bad attitude, because of our sinful selfishness that infects every aspect of our being, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Think about that. Plowing is a good thing, right? Wicked people who have a work ethic and are out there plowing their field. Now, it would be, worse if it, it would be a worse sin if they were lazy, the sluggard you know, sitting on the couch watching television. That would be a worse sin. But even the wicked person who's not right with God through Jesus Christ, who is in his natural, unconverted, selfish, sinful state, his idolatrous, sinful state, even when he works out in the field so that he can provide for his family because he's doing it without supreme regard to God, and without a genuine, heartfelt love for his neighbor as himself, because that is the case, even that is infected with sin. Do we understand how much we need a gospel that is dependent exclusively upon what Jesus has done and not upon our deeds? The best of which is a lawless deed if you judge it by that standard under the microscope. That's why the Bible calls these things dead works. We need to repent of our dead works. Lawless deeds are forgiven. Sins are covered. Think of Adam and Eve. In their sin, in their rebellion against God, they see and they feel their shame and their nakedness. They try to cover themselves with fig leaves. And God comes to them, rebukes them points them to the coming Savior. Genesis 3.15, he says, I'll send the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. I will send Christ to save you from your sins. And then as they believe that promise, God clothes them in animal skins. God kills the first animal death in this world. He kills an animal or multiple animals, clothes them in the skin, covers their shame and their nakedness. David's saying, Paul is saying, blessed is that person whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered, whose shame of their nakedness is covered in a robe of righteousness, in a garment of salvation. Uh, this same imagery, Romans 3.22, think of, think of all of us in our shame and nakedness having nothing in ourselves to bring before God, but our own shame and nakedness. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. It's not just to you, dear believer. It's on you. It clothes you. It covers the shame of your nakedness in the sight of Almighty God. 
And this is important because if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, understand you will stand before God. And I'm not going to sit here and speculate, well, you'll be stark naked before God in front of the whole world. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. But either way, listen, when the Bible uses an illustration to teach us about something, for instance, when it speaks of hell as outer darkness or as a lake of fire, understand Hell is far worse than the illustration. Whatever hell is, it's far worse than a lake of fire. And whatever your condition, whatever your experience will be standing before the judgment seat of God in Jesus Christ at the last day, having refused this covering, you say, it's to all, on all who believe, but I don't want it, and I'll stick to my own confidence in whatever I have confidence in about myself. The Bible says you're going to be ashamed. And if this is an illustration that helps you imagine yourself, you're live-streamed, publicly shamed in your nakedness in front of the entire world, not just the entire world, everyone who means anything to you, you're utterly ashamed. You're, You're stark naked and you're ashamed in front of everyone. That's a biblical illustration for what the judgment day will be like for you. It will be far worse. And Jesus says in the Gospels multiple times that those who are ashamed of Him in this life, He will be ashamed of you at the last day when He comes with His Father and with His heavenly angels. So you think, well, I I don't want to believe in Christ. I don't want to turn to Him. That would be embarrassing. My friend, you have no idea what you're talking about the embarrassment that you will face at the last judgment when you stand before Christ in some sense before all the world will be so infinitely worse. And and hell is isolation. But at the same time, there are passages of the Scriptures where we find the Lord uh, warning kings and people in high positions that when you go down into the grave, All of your enemies will be mocking you and scorning you and saying, oh, this is the guy who did this and said that and boasted in his might and power. Hell is a place of shame. Hell is a place of embarrassment beyond your wildest imagination. Blessed is the man who doesn't have to worry about that. Your sins are covered. And whatever revelations or exposures take place for believers at the last day, we can mark it down that they will be an encouragement and a blessing. Even if certain sins are rebuked and the Lord has fatherly dealings with us and and our sins are brought out in some sense, we're promised that we will not experience shame. That we will be humbled, but the fact of the matter is God will be glorified through the work of Christ and we will be rejoicing. No shame for the believer. No shame will he ever see as the Psalms say. And sin is not imputed. Sin is not imputed. Well, it's imputed. It's not imputed to the believer. It's imputed to Christ who took it. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. If you're a believer, all of the sins that you've committed, think of if you committed a great crime. Sometimes, uh, every now and again, I'll have a dream or you call it a nightmare. I mean, it's not that bad I wouldn't call it a nightmare but a, you know a dream where you know I've done something wrong and now I'm being held accountable and 
so on and so forth. Imagine that you've committed a great sin and it's going to ruin not just your life, but your entire eternity future. It's not imputed to you. The judge says that the payment has been made. The fine has been paid. The punishment has been rendered. Jesus Christ has become sin on your behalf and now you are nothing but righteous in His sight. The relief, the relief. Think of that. I understand the Gospel is not relief to people who don't feel conviction for their sin. I mean, I could just go on and on and on and it wouldn't make a dent. If, if, you're, if you're still trusting in yourself and you don't see the danger and you don't realize that everything you've ever thought, said, and done in this world is culpable and guilty before God because it's infected with the sin that He hates and He's going to cast you into hell for eternity. If that doesn't resonate with you, then I suppose these statements that blessed is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, uh, to whom the Lord does not impute sin, it, it, just, it just doesn't mean anything. But my dear friend, if you know something of your sin and your guilt, it's everything. And if you want to know why there are people that are here in this building worshiping God and rejoicing and who by the grace of God we pray if there were persecution would give their lives for Jesus. Why are these people in our building right now? And why would they by the grace of God be willing to do that? It's because of this. It's far greater blessedness even than life itself. His loving kindness is better than life. And so we see the great blessing of justification first in its gracious judicial character. And we're not going to get through all five points. We'll just do a couple of these and come back next time. But secondly, it's cleansing power. Justification is a great blessing because of its cleansing power. Notice in Psalm 32, the opening verses, that not exactly in the way Paul quotes it, but if you go back to the Hebrew of what he's trying to point our attention to, if you look at the first two verses of Psalm 32, it mentions iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, you'll be familiar with that triad of sinfulness from other portions of the Bible. Uh, For instance, Exodus 34-7, when God shows Moses His glory, His goodness, God walks by and Moses sees the Lord's back parts and he, he marvels to hear the name of the Lord. And one of the things that's said about the name of the Lord is that He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. In some sense, these three are all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about sin. But there are different kinds of sin, different gradations of sin, different varieties of sin that need to be cleansed away by the blood of Christ. And the Scripture teaches us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from every sin. 1 John makes that clear. 1 John chapter 1, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin, every sin. It cleanses us from sin, which is the least heinous type of sin. Of course, the wages of even a sin is death. But a sin would be missing the mark. That's what the word means. A neglect of duty. And so you think of David in Psalm 32. He was lounging and uh, loafing around on the palace roof. He should have gone out to war with the Israelites to fight the battles of the Lord. 
but he was lazily lounging on the top of his roof, complacent, neglecting his duty. That was a sin. And David says he's blessed to have his sin covered. But also he committed transgression. This term heightens the sense of culpability or guilt in the sight of God because it involves willful disobedience, positive rebellion. It may be done on an impulse or in a fit of rage or lust. A transgression is not necessarily premeditated, but it is a willful act of disobedience or positive rebellion. And that's where you see David when he's confronted with Bathsheba bathing on the, on, over uh, on the neighboring, in the neighboring home. He sees her and he chooses to cultivate that lust, to continue to look at her and to then summon her and commit adultery with her. He commits a transgression. He transgresses his marriage covenant. He transgresses the law of God. He transgresses uh, love for his neighbor, Uriah the Hittite, who's out fighting the battles. It's in a fit of lust, but it's a willful act of disobedience. And he's saying, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And also he commits iniquity, the most heinous form of sin, which is premeditated, cold-blooded. David strategizes to deceive Uriah the Hittite to make him think that he fathered this child that's now uh, been uh, conceived in Bathsheba's womb outside of wedlock. He tries to deceive Uriah. He tries to trick him to go back to his house. He tries to get him drunk. He tries all kinds of things to cause him to stumble. And eventually he orders the murder of Uriah the Hittite, that he would be sent to the front lines and then abandoned and killed by the enemy. And and this is the worst form. This is the kind of sin that that David, and really when we read about this sin of David, it's just makes us feel especially uncomfortable. Imagine David himself having committed this sin. But he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute even iniquity. See, he's looking to the blood of Christ that cleanses from all sins. Every type of sin. Every type of transgression. Every type of iniquity. The only unforgivable sin in some sense, is the sin of refusing to receive forgiveness in Christ and being given over to such a hard heart that we just, we refuse indefinitely. But the blood of Christ can cleanse from every sin, every transgression, every iniquity. And that is made clear, in fact, as we saw in our communion service recently at the end of Micah's prophecy, chapter 7. There's a beautiful statement here about the Lord's love and compassion that He does not begrudge to forgive these things. And therefore, we can say He doesn't begrudge to send His Son to die. And Jesus didn't begrudge Himself in dying for our sins on the cross. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage. He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Iniquity, transgression, and sin. There is no sin that you ought not to confidently bring before the Lord 
through Jesus Christ. Bring it to the cross. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So nothing else can take it away. Not my own resolutions to be more spiritual, more religious, can't take away my sin. Not penance, not doing what a religious leader says. Well, if you say this 50 times. No, my friend. Jesus Christ, when He shed His blood on the cross, shed it for the remission of sins. And that is the only sacrifice for sins that God will accept. It's the only one that God has ordained. There's only one Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, appointed by God for that purpose. And quite frankly, every sin we commit deserves infinite judgment. Infinite, eternal wrath of God in hell. And there's only one infinite, eternal Son of God who could bear that iniquity and take away that guilt by dying on the cross. No creature, no mere creature, could pay that penalty and cleanse away that sin. So justification is a great blessing because it gives us comfort that every sin that we've ever committed is able to be cleansed and through faith in Christ stands cleansed by His shed blood. Finally, and again we'll, we'll look at some other points next time, but finally, it's varied application. Justification is such a great blessing because of the many situations, the many individuals that it applies to. Understand, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is no one within the, the hearing of the Gospel who is not invited and commanded to come to Jesus to confess all their sins and have all of them forgiven. It does not matter who you are. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He took on human flesh. He's the only mediator between God and man. So if you're human and you're a sinner, which is pretty likely, okay, then this Gospel applies to you. It has a varied application. We see that in our passage. First, to cleanse outsiders. Strangers, foreigners, pagan idolaters. Now, we don't normally think of Abraham in that way, do we? But he was. In fact, he wasn't Abraham. He was Abram. And Abram lived near Babylon in Ur of the Chaldees. And Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3 says that Abram, with his fathers, worshipped false gods across the river in Ur. Worshipped false gods. And God called him out, and Abraham, by faith, came out of that foreign land and away from those foreign gods and was brought to salvation. You can read about this in Hebrews 11, 8 and following. Uh, you can read it in Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7, verse 2 and following. Uh, we see Genesis bringing his justification to light in Genesis 15, because in particular, as we'll see later in the sermon series, God willing, as we look at the, as Paul unpacks Abraham's experience in believing the promise, it's the promise that he would give Isaac to, Abraham, uh, to Abraham's dead body and Sarah's barren womb. That's when Abraham's justifying faith comes to the forefront and is highlighted by the Scriptures, Genesis 15, 6. But Abram was a pagan idolater on his way to hell without God, without Christ, without hope in this world. 
and he was justified by faith. So you might have, this might be the first time you've ever walked into a church. You may have no religious affiliation, connection whatsoever, but guess what? You could die at any moment, and this gospel offers you assurance of eternal life right now, the moment that you believe. It cleanses outsiders. It cleanses insiders. Because Abraham eventually received circumcision and then his whole household received it as a sign of God's covenant of grace. He received it, but also Ishmael received it. Isaac received it. Eventually, Jacob and Esau. And down through the ages, God's covenant people received this. Because the promise was to Abraham and his offspring. And so you can see God working in the midst of families, covenant families, which means that there are many people from that point on and beyond who come into this world as part of a Christian family, as part of a covenant home. Your parents are believers. And you come into this world in one sense as an insider. You come to church. In terms of our own practice, we baptize the infants of believers You're an insider in one sense. But the fact of the matter is, that doesn't guarantee that you're right with God. You're an insider in terms of privilege, but there's a responsibility to hear and heed and believe the gospel message personally for your own salvation. And this salvation, this justification, cleanses insiders as well. Isaac was saved. He was circumcised as an infant. He grew up in a covenant home. We could say in some sense in a Christian family. His father was the father of the faithful throughout the ages. And yet, Isaac was converted. Isaac's sins were washed away through the blood of Christ yet to come. Jacob's sins on and on down the line. Covenant children, this Gospel is for you. You may not have to, as they say, I need to think of a better illustration, but you, know, you, you may not be called to repent and leave the biker gang or the drug dealings or whatever it is, but you come into this world as a sinner and you need to repent and you need to turn to Jesus as your perfect righteousness in the sight of God. And you need to confess your sin that the blood of Jesus would wash away all of your sins and transgressions and iniquities. You need to do that. And, and when you do, by the grace of God, this, this shed blood of Christ, this justification that is a free gift of God will wash and cleanse you completely of all of your sin. It also applies to the cleansing of backsliders. Think of David. Now just pausing for a moment, there are people who try to argue that the only thing Paul's concerned with here in these chapters of Romans, when he speaks of justification by faith and not by circumcision, the only thing he's concerned with is that these Gentile converts wouldn't have to be circumcised to join the church. That's called the new perspective on Paul. It's actually not that new. Roman Catholics have been parroting this kind of nonsense for centuries. But understand, if Paul's biggest concern when he speaks of justification is people who aren't circumcised being forced to get circumcised to join the church. He wouldn't use David as an example, would he? Because David was already circumcised. 
If the heart of this message is just circumcision and church membership, it wouldn't make any sense to cite David as an example. Because Psalm 32 is not about joining the church. David's already a member of the church. It's not about circumcision. He's already been circumcised. It's about his personal relationship with God through the covenant of grace and salvation in Christ. That's what Psalm 32 is about. That's what Psalm 51 is about. Now, David has already been converted and justified. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying this constant application of his justification and of the cleansing power of Christ's blood, this is something that he's appealing to in these psalms. It's about his personal right standing with God. It has nothing to do with circumcision and church membership. So understand that. But the blood of Christ cleanses backsliders. King David was a believer from an early age. He was a man after God's own heart. Um, probably they wouldn't sell, but you, know, you could make a, a, you know, red hats that say um, MAGO, M-A-G-O-H, man after God's own heart. That's what we actually need in this country, not MAGA. We need men after God's own heart. But David was that, and he was the king of Israel, and he was the author of the Psalms, and he was filled with the Spirit, and yet he fell into foul, wicked, violent, evil deeds. He fell off the cliff spiritually. He made a mess and a wreckage of his Christian life, of his Christian family, and of his church and nation, and all of these things. He he utterly devastated the entire church of God at that time. And God forgave him. And his sins were covered. And I want you to understand this because you're a true Christian and you fall into sin and Satan, just after he gets you to fall into the sin, he's going to come in and he's going to say, God has taken his Holy Spirit from you or God isn't interested in you or you lost your salvation or you never had your salvation and he's going to come in with seeds of doubt of the goodness and mercy of God. Anything to put a brick wall between you and Jesus Christ. And, and you need to come back to this blessedness of justification and to the fact that God in His Word has given an example for you to be comforted by. God would not have put Psalm 32 in the Bible if He was not in the business of forgiving believers who backslide to an immense, radical degree. Right? The Bible was written to make sense. Think about that. Why would God have David go through all of that, record it in the Bible, give us Psalm 32, have Paul quote it as the centerpiece of his argument for the gospel if he was unwilling to forgive your sins? This is why Jesus died. He died not just for the Apostle John standing by the cross, but he died for the Apostle Peter who denied him three times. And went away and wept bitterly, but was forgiven and was restored. Well, we'll come back to this next time. Let's pray. O Lord our God, make these things real to us. Our sin, our transgression, our iniquity, make it real. And the finished work of Christ on the cross... Send it home to our hearts that we may find peace with you.
through the blood of the cross. We pray in his name. Amen.